Well, welcome to the uh, Professor and the Hacker Up to episode um, uh, 51 with the Professor Peter Van Oz. It's great to have your company, Peter. It's great to have your company if you're listening. G'day, Hugh. I'm the hack. How was the hacking cough, Peter? <laughs> I tell you what, it was. He, he coughed up a lung, didn't he? It was. Uh, it was. It was a fair effort, uh, right in the middle. Unfortunately for him, of a speech where he's having to explain, you know, how bad the economic situation is and how big we, the deficit. We speak, of course, of Josh Frydenberg. We do. Yeah, the the, the deficit is now going to be huge. On the very day he was supposed to deliver his back in black surplus that they'd already been crowing about, I, I don't think anybody forgives them for not delivering a surplus in the context of the coronavirus, where I think people can have a bit of fun with him, and I certainly have, is that they preempted it. They were so certain. You know, we've all made mistakes, Hugh. I think episode one, uh, I got a bit premature when it came to the election and the Prime Minister gleefully mocked me uh, in his midwinter ball uh, speech. Well, guess what? I'm going to gleefully mock the Prime Minister who said that absolutely, quote unquote, they'd be delivering their surplus. They printed up the back in black mugs and... The whole point is, and the reason that we should all learn the lessons, whether it's me with election predictions or him with surplus predictions, circumstances change. Events, uh, dear boy, events. Exactly. And uh, the famous you line was, them, can you? <laughs> you, yeah. as I've always said, never make predictions, especially about the future. But um, the great line <laughs> was, we brought the budget back in the black next year. I know, so, I know. And, and, and it was a weird... Wind. The Weekly, I think it was on the ABC, which beautifully mocked that. You know, he can't talk about the present because it involves knifing Malcolm Turnbull. So he's going to talk about the future as if it already was the present. We've brought back the budget to surplus next year. Well, it turns out, of course, uh, nothing like a surplus. In fact, uh, to make things as bad as conceivable on that prediction, they're not only not delivering a surplus, which they probably weren't going to deliver anyway, let's be honest, around the bushfires and other problems, but uh, they are now delivering in all likelihood when the delayed budget gets handed down in October, the worst deficit in Australian history by a mile, not just marginally so, but by an absolute country mile. We're probably talking hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in the upcoming surplus. And if not over the course of the next couple of years, and it'll probably be 10 years before we ever get anywhere near a surplus ever again. But let me say this here, if I can, it was really interesting yesterday because he coughs up along the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. I actually think water just went down the wrong way from watching it live. And then he kind of made a bad situation worse. And you could see the panic in his eyes, knowing the PR way this was going to be reflected on by people. You know, he's giving a bad economic statement and he can't stop coughing uh, as, as a result of it being a bitter pill to swallow. But we were actually from 10 on our way to the treasurer's office to do an interview with him for the nightly news last night, uh, that is to say on Tuesday evening. And uh, we we're going to talk to him obviously about the economics of it. We might've offered him a glass of water as a joke to start things, but we weren't allowed in. We were sitting there in his waiting room. We couldn't understand what the delay was eventually without given any context or reason. We were just told to get out uh, slightly more politely than that, but with no logic or why. And then of course, about an hour later, just as we we're about to file the story, out came that media release of his saying that he was off to get tested on the advice of the deputy chief medical officer for COVID-19. So it made sense why we weren't allowed to go in and talk to him. But here's the really interesting thing. On the way in there, not only you know was, was this all happening and we got ushered out, but we were on our way walking in there before the treasurer went to his actual office. Uh, he was walking with the prime minister shoulder to shoulder. Now, if it wasn't bad enough that he was coughing and spluttering all over the podium 
uh, the dispatch box in the chamber, there was no social distancing queue between him and the Prime Minister when they were walking to the Prime Minister's office. They were literally, if not touching shoulder to shoulder, very close to, right up in each other's space. So, you know, talk about do what we say, not what we do. You know, we've heard the Prime Minister and the CMO and others out on a daily basis demanding people don't relax their social distancing. And here's the Treasurer just shortly after coughing and spluttering his way through his economic address at the end of question time, literally up in the face of the Prime Minister walking along. So just as well, he didn't have COVID-19, not just for his own health, but for the health of the Prime Minister, because he absolutely would have had to self-isolate as well. It is interesting, isn't it? There are so many anomalies in these uh, social distancing rules that uh, drive people crazy, state to state, incident to incident around the place. But uh, you make that good point. The good news is, of course, is that he has been cleared of COVID-19 as a result of that test. Now, uh, one thing that we don't know from the Treasurer, at least, is how deep this uh, deficit is going to be this financial year. The country's uh, true shadow treasurer, he's held the position now for decades, Chris Richardson from Deloitte Access Economics, I think the Access Economics, now um, reckons it'll be in the order of, I think, $270 billion over this financial year and next financial year. Um, Yikes. Give us, a, give us a sense of, of how profound this is going to be for Australia, for our sense of how we perceive ourselves as, as being a country which sort of fancies that we may go into deficit, we may spend a fair bit of time in deficit, we have done uh, since the GFC, but we fancy ourselves as being a kind of a balanced budget kind of mob, and yet this is an absolute long dark hole oh, for, well, for it, decades. It, if, they, if they hand down in one financial year, a deficit in the order of a quarter of a trillion dollars, 250 billion or thereabouts in one financial year alone. For context, and these aren't exact numbers, that is roughly half the national debt, net national debt as it currently stands, roughly. So in one financial year, they will have ratcheted up the equivalent of half the debt as it stands now, which is roughly all the debt that they inherited after the Labor years. They then, of course, have doubled it over the last six years, which has always been a shock to me. You know, how do you justify doubling the debt with no GFC? Yes, they had to turn the ship of state around, as they keep telling us from the Labor years, but does it take the equivalent amount of time that Labor built up roughly a quarter of a trillion dollars of debt to then try to turn that around to a balanced budget without a global financial crisis in the mix? So that, that has never made sense to me. But put that to one side. That's the context of it, Hugh. If it is a quarter of a trillion dollars debt in one financial year, they will be adding 50% roughly to the overall national debt at the moment. Now, we should stress by international standards, our debt is relatively low as a percentage of GDP, a hell of a lot lower than places like the United States and certainly most of Europe. But doing that in one financial year will absolutely put the AAA credit rating at risk, will absolutely take many years to turn around because what you need essentially is growth to catch up with the economy so that you don't have to cut to buggery, which also affects growth. And it will be a case of if it's a quarter of a trillion in one year, then you might get it down to 200 million the next, 150 the one after, 100 the one after that. And that's if things are going well and there is growth in the economy. And then eventually, maybe at some point well down the track, maybe a decade from now, yes, you deliver a surplus. But by then, the current five to 600 billion in built up debt will easily have gone above a trillion, possibly 1.5 trillion. And these numbers are just staggering. 
Yeah, and obviously there has to be fiscal uh, reckoning uh, around this, and this is why I guess we're hearing already talk about uh, cutting out of the JobKeeper payments earlier. Uh, it seems it seems as if that's, from what I'm hearing, not what the government wants to do at the moment. Uh, no. Given it six months, but nevertheless, there's been some conversation around the back benches that. Uh, uh, that, that it's, it would be better to get out and to try to keep those, um, you know, those deficit, the blowout and the deficit, uh, you know, some sort of lid on it. But at the moment, it seems as if there is still such fragility and such a sense that the fragility will last a long time, that JobKeeper is about the only thing that's keeping some people going. In fact, a, a great number of people going, surely. But, but, but enormous anomalies in the scheme. I think it was Anthony Albanese that, that did a version of the comparison that I'm about to give. And it really, it's obviously an extreme version, but it makes the point that this scheme does need amendments because as it is currently constructed, a university student who just works, let's say six hours a week, maybe two, three hour shifts each week or one six hour shift each week casually, if they've been at the same joint for more than 12 months working that shift, they live at home with mum and dad, it's really beer money that they're working for on the side. They suddenly get $1,500 a fortnight under JobKeeper. No questions asked, guaranteed for six months. Now, that's more than they would otherwise get for their six hours, which was only for beer money anyway. And they qualify for that. So they actually make a bit of a profit out of JobKeeper in the way it's constructed now. At the same time as that, because you have to, as a casual, have been in the same job for 12 months to be eligible for JobKeeper, a mother of three working full-time hours, but casually, who has been in a job for more than 12 months or very close to full-time hours and been in that job for more than 12 months, she wouldn't be eligible for JobKeeper um, because, sorry, because she's been there for just under 12 months. Under so she's, 12 been months. There for, yeah. she's been there for 11 months, let's say. And she's got three kids to support. She's working full-time hours, but her employer under no obligation under the industrial relations system hasn't made her full-time. So she's still casual because she hasn't quite ticked over to that 12-month mark. She can't get JobKeeper and therefore, bang, she's stuffed. Now, those are extreme points to make the, the point that the scheme needs a bit, of, a bit of patchwork to fix it. But that is a ridiculous comparison, you know, and that is why change is needed. What we're seeing is just a rerun of, of what uh, Rudd and Swan faced uh, in the GFC, that when you need to get money out quickly, uh, it, it's a pretty blunt instrument. And Which the coalition um, were very critical of at the time. You know, I remember yeah. a very callow MP by the name of Scott Morrison, who had just entered the parliament, was running around doing any media he could back then, exclaiming the stupidity of the Rudd government and, and its botched handling of programs and being unable to adequately get things in place or get them rolled out the door quick enough or get the structures right, uh, that callow MP is now the Prime Minister doing the same thing. While we speak of callow MPs um, becoming Prime Ministers, in the middle of this, Sports Rort has raised its head again. Uh, we're getting more detail coming out about... Um, about this really quite appalling scandal. Don't let me get going on it. Over to you, PVO. Why has <laughs> Sports Rort come back up again? Uh, you've always said that it, 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 it will and should. Why is it back in? And what does it tell us still about Scott Morrison? Well, there's, there's a really important element that has been added. Uh, as a result of answers to questions on notice, we now know uh, that according to Bridget McKenzie, I believe, uh, the, the fact is that the Prime Minister's office was, well, apparently the Prime Minister and by extension his office 
um, wanted to authorize elements of sports rules. And Bridget McKenzie has apparently communicated with that office, making it clear that she understood that there would be some level of authorization coming from the PM and the PMO around the sports rorts structure. Now, the reason that's relevant is because it raises questions about whether or not he's misled the parliament because Scott Morrison has indicated in parliament that no authorization was required from him or the PM. And there appears at least at face value to be a contradiction now in this. And so that's why this is back up in lights. I mean, there's other elements of sports rorts that are continuing to be investigated through the Senate committee process, which will also bring things to light. But this is perhaps the most substantial development that once again, crab walks uh, this scandal closer to the office of prime minister and the prime minister perhaps himself as well. And when asked about this in a media conference the other day, uh, Paul Carp, I believe it was from the Guardian asked a question about this very legitimate question. And the prime minister just, you know, with a smirk on his face, just kind of pushed it away and said, Oh, glad to see that with parliament returning the, the journalists are back on their politicking next question. And he essentially didn't answer it. I think he threw in a no, uh, but without any context or actual answer to the question. And then he just moved things on. Well, I don't know about you, but I think the next question in that press conference should have been given the floor back to the Guardian journalist asking the question. And that's certainly what I'll be doing if in a media conference with him and he attempts to do the same thing again. There are still questions here to be answered. Never telegraph yes. your punches, PVO. <laughs> I don't think he listens to the podcast unless it's just before the midwinter ball to try to embarrass me. Um, it, I mean, the thing about sports rules, two things about that, as you say, it brings it closer into the office of the Prime Minister, uh, which is something that he's denied. So the question then goes into whether he misled Parliament, and that's where he threw in the no, because the question was about whether he'd misled Parliament uh, or, or key part of that question. Uh, but uh, the fundamental scandal remains, and that is the fact that he stands willing to defend the use of our own money, taxpayers' own money, to rort and buy our votes in an entirely targeted political way for the benefit of a political party. That's the essence of the scandal, isn't it? It is, and it continues to irk me and others that even though Bridget McKenzie lost her job, she did it on another technicality, not on you know, breaching ministerial guidelines, not on the substantive point of needing reform around sports rorts in the way that this was carved up for partisan political purposes, according to the Auditor General, was inappropriate and therefore needs to change. So that, that's the frustrating part of that. But this is just one scandal here. I know we're going to take a break. But, you know, Angus Taylor, uh, I'm expecting that to come up in question time. There's a myriad of other issues that the Prime Minister and the government are facing. Uh, but obviously for them, uh, they keep trying to steer things back to the, the big issue at hand the coronavirus and the economic fallout that it creates. Yeah, right, rightly so on a level, but it's giving them a lot of cover for other mischief. Let's take that quick break. And uh, we've got a lot more to talk about, PVO. Stay there. 12 years ago, Australia fell in love with MasterChef. Then it became a worldwide phenomenon. Your favourite MasterChef contestants are back to win. Poe. I have a little bit of unfinished business. Laura Reynolds. I'm sacrificing a lot, but it's worth it. Callum Hayden. I'm coming back to win. MasterChef on 10. Welcome back. We're on episode 51 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Remington, and with me is the Professor, uh, Peter Van Onselen. Um, Can I ask you a question, Hugh, before you... I mean, I, I know you've, you, you tend to 
run the press conference. Uh, not not me, <laughs> as Andrew Proben was told. But 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 I'm gonna, I, I normally like it that way because you're much more organised than I am. But I do want to get your thoughts on China, uh, on what's yeah. going on between Australia and China with all of this trade war brewing stuff. I mean, where, where do you think the substance of this lies? Well, I'm really interested. I've, I've been a long time China watcher, and uh, this is a classic China play. So uh, we heard from Finance Minister Matthias Cormann saying, oh, look, these are normal events. If it wasn't because it had been tied up into this discussion about Australia pushing for a global inquiry into the origins of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, in other words, mm. having a closer look at China, we wouldn't be talking about these little technical matters that were going on in trade. But uh, essentially, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman himself belled the cat at the press conference uh, that they held in China, in which in the, in the middle of discussing, uh, they, they can be on, on, on one level quite technical questions about health certification, for example, related to beef coming out of abattoirs. But then he gratuitously threw in a crack about uh, uh, countries continuing to, quote, politicize the pandemic. So plainly, the Chinese are happy to see it tied as an issue which has now spread from uh, Bali, which faces a 74% tariff increase from China, steals in the game beef, a quarter of all our beef exports go off to China. So they're now being uh, subject to uh, a hold up on our exports over there. There's fear about our wine exports, seafood and other commodities that we send there. Uh, particularly with agricultural and particularly with, um, if you like, meat and, and fish, uh, there's no easy way to stockpile this stuff. So it's not as if you can just make another pile of iron ore and eventually you'll sell it off. So this becomes uh, a really major problem. Uh, grain you can to a certain degree, but I've noticed that the stocks that are exposed to grain have taken a big tumble on the Australian share market. So let's look at the essential question here. It is, should there be a global and proper inquiry into where the uh, pandemic started, where, where COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 came from? Of course, there should mm. be. It is an entirely proper oh, yeah. uh, gotcha. thing that everyone plainly has a stake. I mean, you would think that there should be a global uh, oversight to an inquiry into an epidemic, even if it was contained entirely within the borders of China, because we all have an interest in understanding, or the scientists have an interest in understanding the science of how a, a disease has broken out, what its nature was, its spread, how it was first um, detected, what the responses were, because these are gonna crop up in other parts of the world. And the whole point about uh, information about things like disease control is to have the best available information to really understand uh, you know, how it's working anywhere in the world so that anywhere else in the world, we can be better to respond to it. Now, given that this is now blown out to a pandemic, it's basically in every part of the world, uh, there is absolutely no justification for there not being a properly constituted inquiry happening in as close to real time as we can, not in 10 years time, so that we can understand as deeply as we can where it came from, what the problems were, this, you're never going to get an ideal response to, a, to a, a new disease outbreak. There are going to be mistakes made. That's part of it. But the Chinese are so incredibly sensitive. Uh, in fact, uh, it is deeply written in them to reject any notion that anyone else is entitled to have uh, a look at what China does. 
And if you, if you go to, back to the rhetoric that they use, they, they talk about the century of humiliation uh, after the British mm. went in there, the opium wars. This sounds arcane and nonsensical to people who are not engaged in it, but to the Chinese, these are very active centers of, of um, their own kind of national grief because they had a they had a hellish time from about 1840, 1840 till about till about basically the year 2000 china was a pretty shitful place to be and oh, and i remember i mean that i find i find that history absolutely fascinating you know and 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 you know learning more uh, as a sort of amateur historian about you know the 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 long term history of China and how dominant it was, not just in its region, but, you know, as an economy, as the global leader, really, even though we were in an age of limited exploration versus what then happened to it in more modern history. Uh, and yeah, the sense of, of national shame, uh, of more frustration and anger uh, at what happened with the British and then the aftermath of that. And then now, of course, the reemergence of China uh, in truly modern, modern history uh, a return to normal, if you like, almost from, from their perspective with learned lessons. It, it is such an interesting thing. And the framing of it, until you actually understand that framing of it, you don't understand the Chinese way of thinking about this. They think in much longer term about all of this uh, than, than a lot of Western governments uh, and Western, you know, I guess, people do. There's also issues here because President Xi, who had set himself up as an autocrat, rather like a sort of a Putin character, who was using the mechanisms, he got rid of term limits. Uh, mm. Plainly, his intention he, he was to was to remain in power uh, for as long as he wanted to, and he was centralising power at a level that even his predecessors um, were not didn't even appear to contemplate. He's an incredibly powerful man, but he's got the wobbles on, and. Mm. The pandemic hasn't helped this. There have been some other misjudgments. He's, he's got enemies. He seemed to have more or less, as inevitably will happen in a country like China or any other political structure, he'll, you'll have enemies and rivals and so on. But he seemed to have pushed them all away. And, uh, and yet they're, they, they've, they're taking advantages, taking little nips out of his heels. And so for some reason, the, 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 the reasonable request and the stated request that there be a proper global investigation seems to have touched a very raw nerve. And what China has been willing to do, it's been willing to do it over those disputed islands in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, um, is that it knows that it's powerful and doesn't mind wielding a bit of that, having a little flex. And they did this a while back when just for a day, they put a, a day or two, they put a hold on coal imports. And, um, mm. and everyone went into conniptions and they said, oh, no, 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 nothing, no problem. No, no, bring them back in. But it was just enough to let everyone know we can do whatever the hell we like. And in doing these things, we'll see where it goes. We've got um, the Trade Minister, Simon Birmingham's on, on the phone today, as we understand, to the, his, foreign, uh, his, uh, his trade equivalent in China, Zhongshan. And they may sort something out. They may smooth things over. China might decide that they haven't quite finished uh, teaching us a little lesson. But these are things which would immeasurably add to our pain at a time when we are... Uh, economically vulnerable because of uh, COVID and all the rest of it. So yeah, and and and, and, and it plays it plays very interestingly into the political tensions within Australia and indeed within the government around how to deal with China. You know, you've got the the pragmatists who want to balance the relationship between the US as an ally and China as the emerging economic superpower who we have such trade dependence on for our prosperity and for you know, in no small part for our way out of this coronavirus crisis, for example. But then you have 
the security hawks, you know, your Andrew Hasties and your James Pattersons, who are less willing or interested in being pragmatic and try to balance and more interested in, in picking the US for security and cultural reasons and, and calling out China uh, over some of what they do. And, and how those tensions intermesh, I think, is fascinating. And that's before you even then layer in the opposition. Sure. And, and the Hawks, of course, see themselves as being pragmatic in the sense that uh, they say that, you know, the only way in which you can get balance with China is to be strong against it. So, so those are those, those counter arguments that run in there. But then, OK, we're going to talk to the United States just for a second. Look at where they're going. There's all this pressure to, to reopen uh, society. President Trump uh, seems to be very keen to bang the drum, in, uh, the drum in support of this. And then you've got Anthony Fauci, who's the head of their uh, infectious diseases um, uh, institute and the chief advisor on these matters to Donald Trump, saying there will be more suffering and death if this happens, clearly signaling that the United States is, it is not safe for the United States to do what so many in the United States are demanding. And that is essentially to bounce back and, uh, you know, celebrate their American exceptionalism. Nothing holds its back that uh, it won't well, go right ahead, but it'll come at the cost of suffering and death. He, he, he doesn't sugar those pills. And so uh, that's a problem for the United States, but it's also, as you go into an election yeah, we're now, God, we're only six months out from a U.S. presidential election. And it is, it is on for young and old. It's, there's no way of knowing what might happen between now and then. Well, um, yeah, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, you know, I, I, I am absolutely no Trump fan, uh, both from when he was elected, indeed, to, you know, the, the view that he should be removed at the next election. But the problem with Joe Biden is that he looks like he's more ready to enter a nursing home than enter the White House. You know, like, I mean, he, 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 it's not just his age, it's his frailty as well. Uh, and he's up against Trump. Trump is a loose cannon. Uh, Biden ended up being probably, electorally speaking, the best candidate amongst the Democrat mob anyway, um, you know, despite my criticisms, just because uh, of what he can do in those Rust Belt states, potentially, uh, in terms of appeal for voters, uh, and how he can unify the various forces as long as the get out the vote continues to be there. But, you know, his frailty is an issue. Uh, he is a bit of a bumbler. Uh, Donald Trump will target that pretty ferociously. His choice of vice president is going to be really interesting. Well, I mean, this is the key to it. I mean, Biden is 77. And sometimes he says things that are simply incomprehensible. He simply loses his... Um, his mastery of language in the middle of a speech. <laughs> and, and that's a concern. That's, yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy your laughter at this, but this is a guy who's, a, who's seeking to start a presidential cycle, presidential term. Trump, of course, it, it, the, the difference with Trump is, is that he garbles and, and mangles and gets things wrong. There is a, there's a whole world of YouTube videos of him uh, in, being incapable of pronouncing words and all the rest of it. Uh, but people seem to have given him a discount because it's part of his shtick. He always was a guy who ran his words over each other and 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 sort of linked non-seconders together and all that sort of stuff so he seems to have been somewhat and we've seen that before haven't we Hugh I mean you know George W Bush did the same thing problems in the Middle East create problems throughout the entire region Dan Quayle said America is the greatest planet on earth uh, you know we've had these guys that that fumble their words time and again uh, the interesting thing though about Joe Biden is it, it's a version actually of what Ronald Reagan uh, did or had and the way that he functioned as president, but more in his second term, not in his first, which is why I think 
the choice of vice president is so important with Joe Biden because he's potentially at his age, even if he gets there at best a one term, uh, a one term president. I mean, he could actually die of old age in office. You know, we could we could turn around one day and have a press conference that the president has passed away. And, you know, what happened? It's just like, no, he just passed away peacefully in his sleep. You know, he's, he's actually old enough for that to happen um, at his age. So the vice president as a choice is very important. Let me posit something. This is Any 77-year-olds in good health out there listening to this, uh, <laughs> you know, don't be too disturbed I, there by Dr. I, I, Dr. Van Onsel and he's, he's not a medical doctor. Not non-medical Dr. Van Onsel. I, I say that as someone who who both both my parents died in their 60s. So as far as I'm concerned, you, know, you get to 80 and you're, you're doing well. You've hit life expectancy. But look, the, the, the choice of vice president is important. What do you think of this? Because I know we're almost out of time, but what do you think of this? This is not going to happen, but this is my dream scenario. I might write a column on this. He's about to pick his vice president. He's going to pick a woman. I think that's great. He uh, said he and, would, yep. Yep, he said he would, so presumably he will. Uh, and so we're looking at all the different uh, females that are excellent contenders to be the VP nominee for the Democrats amongst the Democrats. Had he not put that caveat in place, I would have liked to see him pick Mitt Romney. Pick Ooh. the Republican. Pick the Republican that the, the Republicans Mormon, hate. Former Republican candidate for president, the only Republican in the Senate queue who was prepared to vote for the impeachment of Trump. And I reckon that would have been a fascinating choice to have him as the Democrat VP option against Trump. Now, may, maybe it's just in my insane world it sounds good. You, but you should, you should I, be writing novels. It's it's a. I feel like it would have brought in. Um, you know, middle of the road Republicans who either don't vote because it's Trump or maybe begrudgingly vote for Trump because it's Biden and whoever he chooses. As his Many VP. Republicans, though, would have seen him as being like a version of a Manchurian candidate as essentially a total opportunist. The, the, the debate would then have switched around much more to the vice president because Republicans would be asked for or people would be asked to vote for a proposition of a Democrat where Biden could well, as you point out, not go a full term. And so therefore they've unwittingly elected uh, a lifelong Republican. Um, I'm not sure that would exactly. Yeah, but he was always, he was always a Massachusetts liberal and all the rest of it. I mean, in some ways, other than his religious tendencies uh, and some of his economic positioning, although most of America's on the right on that front anyway. Yeah. To me, he always kind of had a bit of the Democrat in him and Republicans were a bit skeptical. Anyway, I just, I, I like, I, I like the fantasy of it, Hugh. I think it would be fascinating. The, the Malcolm Turnbull candidate of uh, American politics <laughs> is fascinating. And it is fascinating to think that uh, uh, there are, as you say, uh, at, at least, uh, you know, at least five strong women, not all with huge profiles, um, who would be in the frame for, for that job. And uh, uh, there's a few jumps between now and then, but uh, the next few years in the United States looks as though it may be no less intriguing than the four that we've uh, currently been in this term. And of course, we can't rule out a Trump second term either. Uh, and on that cheerful note, Professor <laughs> uh, Peter Van Onselen, so good to talk to you as always. Talk soon. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hi, 
everyone. This is Ange Bishop letting you know that if you're stuck in lockdown and looking for something to do after you've watched Studio 10, of course, have a listen to some of our 10 Speaks podcasts. Ramsey Beat takes a look behind the scenes of iconic TV show Neighbours as it celebrates its 35th anniversary. There's the Husey We Have a Problem podcast, which is the best bits from the fantastic TV show. And our Reality Bite podcasts, Cocktails and Roses and Jungle Nights, for when you're feeling like a reality TV deep dive. While you're at it, give the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast a go. Find them all on the 10 Speaks page on 10Play or wherever you get your podcasts.